Good morning. I'm Reverend Angela Wells-Bean. I'm your minister for congregational care here at Naples United Church of Christ. And we are so thrilled to have you with us this morning, whether you are in person or joining us remotely. Thank you for being here on this Sunday morning. And a special welcome to our members who are at Arbor Trace who are gathered together in community and worshiping with us. We are glad to have you. I'd like to ask you to now register your attendance with us. So that means if you're here in the sanctuary, go ahead and take out those blue attendance pads that are at the edge of your pews. Please fill them out and pass them to your neighbor and maybe give your neighbor a smile while you pass it along. And if you're worshiping online, go ahead and write in the comments section where you are this morning. And while you're there, you can click on a link which will bring up a PDF of our bulletin if you'd like to follow along. And I'm David Greenhaw. I'm the interim senior minister of this congregation, and I'm happy to be here and also share greetings. I don't know if I'm as nice as she are. If you sign the pad, you can can frown at the person next to you if you want. Um, I have uh, just a couple of uh, quick announcements for this upcoming week. One, uh, we are continuing our series of midweek meditations, and they're they're, they're really a treat. They're just 30 minutes to listen to extraordinary music, and to hear a brief reflection, say a prayer together, and just uh, take a break in the middle of the week. I really commend it. Uh, This week, uh, this one, like all, is at noon on Wednesday. And uh, our own uh, uh, Jeannie Snedeker, the interim director of Christian education, will be uh, bringing the meditation. And it turns out that a very fine oboist that she's married to, uh, Andrew Snedeker, will be the musician. So uh, please, uh, uh, if you've not done these, uh, you don't want to miss them. They're really great. Second, uh, I've been teaching quite a bit here. And every time I teach, I say, well, now, let's wait, and we'll talk about that in the course I'm going to teach on the resurrection. And I've said that all year long. Well, this week, the course on the resurrection starts. It's a two-week session. Uh, It's on uh, Friday at uh, 10 a.m. over in Nelson Hall. Please join us. Uh, If you are a skeptic about the resurrection, you join the rest of the world, including the New Testament church, and we'll reflect on why we uh, have so much trouble with it and why it continues to be the center and most important thing about Christian faith. So I hope you'll uh, join us uh, two uh, Fridays in a row, this Friday and the following one. And last week, I brought to your attention our Wise for Mental Health dinner. It's this Thursday. We're bringing in Reverend Dr. Sarah Lund. She's a UCC minister and mental health expert, and will share with us all about the epidemic of mental health crisis happening among our youth and our young people and how we can be supportive of them. So it's a really timely topic, and the deadline to sign up for that dinner is today. We need a head count so that we can prepare. So if you head out to the gathering place after worship, please go ahead and write your your name down on the sign-up list. We'd love to have you this Thursday. And also this Tuesday, two days from now, our Environment Subcommittee is sponsoring a program about the amendment of the right to clean water. They're trying to get it on the ballot, and it's Floridians having a right to clean water. And they're going to bring in Joseph Bonasia. He's the campaign coordinator for Southwest Florida. And of course, we know how critical water is to us, to our life and our livelihoods. 
neighborhoods um, and also to the economy down here. So please come to that important conversation. No need to sign up. Uh, that it will be in Beverly Hall at 4 o'clock on Tuesday, and it will also be live streamed if you'd like to join us remotely. And uh, last, next Sunday uh, in the afternoon, um, there's a concert right here in the sanctuary, a jazz concert. Brandon Goldberg is a piano, a piano player, a pianist who will be playing a jazz piano. We joined with other uh, jazz musicians. Those of you who've been this in the past have told me what a great thing it is. Come ready to tap your toe uh, and uh, join us next week on Sunday for a concert here. Um, and the price for that, this one has a price because there are tickets, but uh, you can get tickets either online or by calling the office. I believe it's $30. So let us prepare our hearts and minds for the worship of God. We build fences, walls, and gates. We create membership cards and dues and VIP lists. We decide who is in and who is out. But at the church, there are no bouncers at the door. All are welcome in this sacred space. Come, let us worship our God who makes space for all of us. Please, let us pray together. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Will you join me now in a season of prayer? Let us pray. Oh, holy God, we pray this day for eyes to see, eyes to see the amazing world you have created, the, the rolling waves hitting the beach, the, the wispy clouds floating against a bright blue sky, the lush green of trees and grasses and how they bend with the wind. We pray for eyes to see we pray this day for eyes to see, eyes, eyes to see the presence of sadness in the world you love, the wave of grief that rolls across the face of a friend when they remember a loved one now gone, the floating dread that grips a doctor who must bring bad news to a patient the wincing expression of a loved one bent over in pain. We pray for eyes to see. We pray this day for eyes to see, eyes to see your power to renew, the hope that keeps coming wave after wave, pushing back despair, beating it down, lifting our spirits, the forgiveness that blows away the darkness that clouds our relationships, the stunning power of your love that straightens out crooked places, 
opens new pathways for us, provides new beginnings. We pray for eyes to see. For all this and more, we give you thanks this day. Thanks that we can look at both the beauty and struggle of life because we know your loving presence in the world, in our lives, in our shared future. Give us eyes to see. Amen. The so-called fourth gospel is a long and complicated narrative and description of the life of Jesus, quite different from the other three Gospels. But at the center of it is this long and intricate narrative in the ninth chapter. Listen to these excerpts. Read along, if you can, in your bulletin as we hear the story of the man born blind. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it's someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Salaam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether Jesus is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? 
He answered them, I told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here's an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but God does listen to one who worships God and obeys God's world. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sin and are trying to teach to us. And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me so that I might believe in him. Jesus said to him, You, you have seen him. And the one speaking with you, is he he said Lord I believe and he worshipped him Jesus said I have come into this world for judgment for those who do not see may see and for those who do see may become blind some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him surely we are not blind are we Jesus said to them If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. So I'm going to tell you all a story about a girl named Anna. When Anna was four years old, she and her parents moved to a new community. And like any parents with young children, they wanted to get to know the other parents in this new area and the children so that they could make friends and help their daughter, Anna, make friends. So after getting there, they got a few invitations for play dates and birthday parties and that sort of thing. But then the invitations dried up. Anna's classmates and the kids in her neighborhood stopped inviting her to spend time with them. And when all the parents were gathered together talking, they would look askance at Anna's parents. Her mom knew something was off. Because you see, the kids in Anna's community didn't understand her. Anna's different. Anna likes being by herself. Anna's not very social. Anna likes her structure and her routines. Anna's not really good at reading facial expressions. So after putting these pieces together, her parents decided to have her tested, and the results confirmed their suspicions that Anna was diagnosed with autism. Now, the problem in this story is not that Anna has autism. Let me emphasize that. Not that she's neurodivergent. That is not the problem. The issue is that she was being excluded. She was being left out. She wasn't included, and this was hurting her. And of course, this was hurting 
her parents to watch their daughter suffer. And so they realized they needed to make a change. So they enrolled her in a new school, a school that is focused on complex kids like Anna. Her mom uses the word complex to describe her. Anna's doing really well. Just a few weeks after starting at her new school, she had this big, beautiful color photo of her class, and she put it on the wall of her bedroom next to her bed. And a few weeks later, on Family Fun Day, after her parents got to the school, they arrived in the parking lot, Anna jumped out of the car and ran to the playground to play with her new friends, and her parents stood there chatting with the other parents. Anna has found a place where she belongs. She's in now. In the long story that we just heard from the Gospel of John, this is what the Pharisees are trying to figure out. This man who has been healed, does he belong in or out? Jesus, does he belong in or out? Although we know how the Pharisees feel about Jesus at this point. Because you see, this interaction takes place inside the temple. But before this, when the man was blind, he was kept outside the temple because he had to beg in front of the temple gates. And they're really trying to figure out what's going on with Jesus because he can heal people, which means he's powerful, which means he's threatening. And also, he healed this man on the Sabbath, and this has made the Pharisees mad. And so they're talking to this man and trying to trap Jesus, figure out where he is, so that they can hold him responsible for his actions. Now, the way that they're trying to get this information and figure out if these two men belong in or out is by interrogating this poor man. Why were you born blind? Was it, were you being punished because of something you did or the sins of your parents? Who healed you? How did he heal you? Why did he heal you? Where is he? They ask him 20 questions, and there's a piece of the story that we didn't include this morning. And they also interrogated his parents. Why was your son born blind? Who healed him? How did he heal him? And the parents plead the fifth. They say they do not profess Jesus as Messiah. They say, we don't know. Our son is a grown man. Ask him. They totally deflect. Now, this man has every reason to want to be in the good graces of the powerful members of society. He could lose his sight just as quickly as he gained it. So if he becomes blind again, it's in his best interest to want to be friends with the powerful elites so that they can help him. And his parents, they have been ostracized ever since they had a blind son. So it's in their best interest, again, to want to make fast friends with the elites. But the man does not play their game. He doesn't answer their questions. He doesn't justify his healing. All he says is, he healed me. I was blind, but now I see, and that's enough for me. I cannot explain it. And so, of course, the Pharisees are not satisfied with this because he doesn't tell them what they want to hear. And so they kick him out of the temple. Well, who's there waiting for him when he gets kicked out of the temple is none other than Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, welcome back. It's so good to see you. Come on, don't worry about those guys. Come join my ministry. We want you. You're needed. And we see this beautiful evolution of this man's faith. At the start of the story, he just says, I don't know. Jesus is some man that healed me. 
And then he realizes, oh, this man must be a prophet. And then he says, this man is of God. And then he calls him Lord. And then he worships him. So throughout the course of the story, his devotion to Jesus gets deeper and deeper. And eventually he becomes a devoted disciple. Now, this story was written when, by the second generation of Christians. So by the time this story was written down, everyone who had lived among Jesus and experienced his teachings and his ministry and his healings firsthand, they had all passed away. Everything happening among the second generation is all through hearsay. And they're having this existential crisis. How in the world are we going to get people to be part of this movement of Christ followers, to profess Jesus as Messiah, to perpetuate this fledgling faith if we can't prove what he did? We can't show people so they can see with their own eyes what he did. We can't have them hear his sermons and his parables with their own ears. We're not going to get people to be able to join our movement and it's going to die. Well, the message that God has for us in this story is the same message God had for that second generation of Christians, which is you don't need proof in order to have people be part of this new community of Christ followers. All you're looking for is people who have faith. What does faith look like? Faith is being able to distinguish good from evil. What is of God and what is not of God. What is righteous and what is sinful. It's knowing Jesus' teachings and the way that he conceived of our world. And when you see a situation, knowing whether that is of Christ or not of Christ. You don't need proof. When my now husband and I were dating, he made a comment to me once that I'll never forget. He said, you know, you use that word discernment a lot. And I didn't really think much of it. I was like, yeah, that's a large part of my vocabulary. Well, the reason I used it a lot and he kind of thought it was odd was because it's a Christian word. And I spend most of my time in religious circles. And so, yeah, we used it all the time in the church office and in church committee meetings and with other clergy. But my husband worked in the secular world and they didn't throw around the word discernment the way we did. So what discernment means is when a Christian is at an intersection and you're trying to decide if something is of God or not of God. You know, you've got some choices before you. Which is the godly path to take? That's literally what discernment means. And Jesus discerned really quickly that the Pharisees were not of God. They were focused on tiered levels of belonging, who is in and who is out. And he knew that was not the ways of God. And sometimes exclusion is formal. It's by policy and written statements and doctrine and dogma and literally telling people you're included, you're not, you can be in leadership and you can't be. But more often than not, exclusion, especially in the life of the church, is more insidious than that. It's the way our friend Anna was excluded. No one told her, you can't come. You're not invited to the play dates and the birthday parties, and we don't want you to come get ice cream with us after soccer practice. They didn't tell her. They weren't explicit. But because she wasn't included and invited and wanted, she received a message really quickly that her presence among those kids wasn't valued. 
And exclusion in the church can be really insidious like this. I'll share an example with you of what exclusion can look like. It's when a church only lifts up certain people or certain kinds of people in leadership roles or only has certain kinds of people standing on the chancel. And so the message others receive is if I don't look like that or act like that or talk like that, then I'm not going to be able to be in leadership in that church. It's the communications and marketing and publicity and how a church presents itself to the wider world. And so the community, if they're looking in on the way we present ourselves and they don't see themselves represented, the message they receive is I'm not invited to be in leadership in that community. Sure, you can join us on Sunday morning and sit in the pews and we will definitely take your money. But you're not going to have a seat at the table of the leadership. You're not going to be invited to help craft the ministries and shape the direction of that church. And so Jesus knows it's not enough to just hang a banner that says all are welcome. Because if you're that vague and you're that generic, you run the risk of being exclusive and exclusionary in these really insidious and sneaky and unintentional ways. And so Jesus is really explicit in his welcome. He's really clear about who he wants to be part of this ministry with him. You, the man born blind, you are invited. You, the Samaritan woman, the hemorrhaging woman, the leper, the person afflicted with a demon spirit. You, the child, you, the poor widow who only has two gold coins, all of you who have been kept on the outside, you are welcome in. Now, there's a seat for you at the table. Your input and your opinions and your perspectives matter. I want you to help shape this ministry. Because... People who are focused on inclusion and exclusion and tiered levels of belonging, they are blind to the ways of God, blind to the realm of God. In this story, the blind man does, yes, he does get his sight, but let us really think about who are the blind ones in the story that we just heard. Because in the realm of God, God takes all of those things we use to divide ourselves It matters not how old you are or how you look or how you dress or where you got your education or if you got a formal education. It matters not what language you speak, how much money you have in your bank account, who you love or the color of your skin or the country of your passport. All of these barriers we erect to segment and divide ourselves, God comes in with a sledgehammer and says, no, no, no. There's no difference. In my realm, all are invited to participate. All you have to do is be like that man who said, Lord, I believe. That's it. Now, I understand that sometimes our faith can be on shaky ground. And so some days we might only be able to say, Lord, I'm trying. I'm trying to believe. That's good enough. That's the only requirement for belonging. No proof, no evidence, no receipts needed. In the realm of Christ, in this new community of Christ followers, all you have to do is say, Lord, I'm trying to believe. May it be so in this community as well.
Amen. Gracious God, all that we are and all that we have is a gift from you. Receive these gifts from us and our lives as we dedicate them to your service. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Friends, as you go from this place, may you remember that you are always welcome here. No pre-qualifications necessary. And may you also remember that you are a beloved child of God. You are created in God's image. And I pray that you go from this place in peace. Amen.